Chats from the Blog Cabin. Your favorite podcast is here. Welcome back to another episode of Chats on the Blog Cabin. You know, the show where I invite people virtually into the blog cabin to chat about life. And today we're chatting about the big C word, cancer. And with me, Patricia wrote this amazing book called Pretty Girls Don't Get Cancer. And it's all about her story um, dealing with cancer. And full disclosure, I've had two family members die from cancer. So I applaud you. I am so happy that you're a survivor and that you were able to write this book so other cancer patients can go see what they go through and know that they're not alone because your cancer was terminal, was it not? Yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry for your losses. I'm, I'm you know, it's one of those things that uh, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Uh, at the same time, I wonder, right, um, why and how and, and why other people can't and, and, and don't. And so, so I'm, I'm terribly sorry for your loss. So tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into talking about the book. Okay. Um, so first, thank you for having me here. I'm, I'm so thrilled to be here. Um, my name is Patricia Diaz, and um, I'm a, a self-published author. I um, am a yoga instructor, also an HR consultant. And um, I just love uh, life in general. And um, I'm very happy that um, I get to share all the, the story and what transpired back then uh, so that hopefully others can can take a look and see that there is life after cancer there can be life after cancer um, and um, that there's so many ways that we can help support the cancer patients and survivors and uh, just make it better for everyone now let's talk about the book pretty girls don't get cancer mm -hmm. the title of the book you've got to tell us why the title because I, I i read it in the book but i want you to tell why you did that Sure, and I apologize if that is a, if that's an offensive title for anyone. Um, it was an unusual um, uh, statement that a doctor told me when I was uh, in, when I went to my first uh, consult um, with a doctor. I was already ill. Um, I didn't know what I had, um, but he said, "Don't worry, pretty girls don't get cancer." And at the time, I took it like you know, well, he's just wanting to reassure me. So I'm just going to dismiss it. Like a lot of the things got dismissed back then in the eighties, uh, especially in a culture that was very male dominated, like Venezuela, uh, at the time, I'm not sure how things are today, but, um, back then it was very male dominated. So those were comments that were, well, you know, you just kind of brushed off, well, whatever. Um, but obviously it's very inappropriate and, um, uh, just not, not okay. But I chose it as a title, mm -hmm. uh, taking the risk of doing it, but, um, because, you know, in spite of all of that adversity, in spite of that horrible comment, you know, I, I made it through and, um, you know, we can either get stuck on, on things that we don't like or, or comments like that and be miserable all, all our lives, or we can write a book and, and make it better <laughs> for, for everyone, or we can do other things and make it better for everyone, right? Now, um, you put part of, I think in the dedication in the book, um, 
not the dedication, but like the very first part, you had the prayer that you and your sister, your sister wrote, actually. Mm -hmm. It says, thank you, Father, for I am healed. How much did that help you during that? Because that little part, that first part was like, wow, that packed the punch. Yeah, yeah. That helped because not not only helped, it influenced. There was there was no doubt. Uh, there was, um, you know, I'm healed, right? It's thank you, God, for I am healed. I was raised with uh, the culture of asking for things, right? You, you had to ask, may I be healed? Or can, you know, please, please heal me. No, this was a complete turnaround of my, my way of thinking. It was, I am healed. Thank you, because you healed me already. And, and the, the visualization was uh, seeing myself shining, my body shining, and, and I was healthy and, and uh, completely well, and then that I was able to walk again and breathe again and do all the things that a teenager would do at that, that, my age back then. So let's start at the very beginning when you are diagnosed or when you don't even know you're being diagnosed, when you start feeling really bad and you're not listening to your body. Because I think that's a lot of things in the book you talk about. You have to listen to your body. Your body gives you signals. So let's talk about that. So sure. Uh, I I was a teenager. I thought, you know, I was doing all the things that, that I was supposed to do, riding bikes with my, my friends. Um, going out in the streets and hanging out at the pool and things like that. And eventually I got a headache, um, a, a, a cold. Um, I got a, a bleeding nose or nosebleed, sorry. Um, mm -hmm. And you know what? It was, it was something that I would brush off. Like, ah, it's nothing. I'll just, you know, ride it through and, and that's it. Um, or I would go to the um, closet and reach for an Advil and take it right? Because it was reachable. It was there. And that was the fastest, the quickest way to get rid of a headache. So things started to pile up and I didn't realize that. On top of that, it was the last year of high school and I had more responsibilities. I was the um, one of the editors for the yearbook and I was doing all these things and thinking about college and I already had a lot of emotional things happen. You read the book, you know, all the things that had happened in my, in my teenage years. So there was a lot of emotional um, things happening at that time during my, my, my last year of high school. And, you know, what broke the camel's back? I don't know. But uh, at some point, my immune system said, but can't deal with it anymore. And, um, and, you know, it, it, the rest is history, right? One thing after another, went to a doctor, the doctor dismissed it, and he gave me 10 uh, pills to take. And in taking those pills, that's when the fevers came in and, and all the, the um, more severe uh, no, um, bloody nose. And it, at some point it was like, I, I just couldn't breathe anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's when, okay, well, that's not normal. And yeah. then they took me to the hospital. So the person that actually took you to the hospital is not the person that was around in your everyday life, correct? Correct, yes. And it was part of a discussion with my sister. My sister was um, apparently had a, a conversation with my mother saying, hey, um, take her. <laughs> like, she's, I don't see her well, she, that's not normal. Uh, and when, I, when my mom called me, I was talking, but I was coughing every other word. and then 
uh, she said, okay, I'm taking you to the hospital on Monday. And I was hospitalized that same day. My, my first reaction was how could people not see that, you know, you said you were losing weight and you couldn't breathe and you had all these things. How could people not, especially the ones that see you in everyday life, not see it? You don't. It's, it's you just don't because you're seeing the person every single day. And why would you question it? You first, it's uh, almost like a denial. Nobody has gone through cancer in our lives. We didn't know what it looked like. Um, why would it be cancer? You don't think it'll ever hit you, right? Um, you don't have, we didn't have any history in the house. And so I was kind of the first one to ever go through something like that, um, as severe as that. But yes, there were some allergies and, and little things, um, little health things here and there, but nothing like cancer. Um, we always saw cancer as something that would happen to other people mm. and, and not to us, right? So um, this was an eye-opener for all of us. Um, it was somebody else that saw, hey, I'm seeing her a little bit, you know, yellow. Her color mm. is not the same. She's very thin. Hmm, you might want to take her to the doctor to get her checked. And um, everybody dismissed that comment too. And then a few months later, that's when things hit. Wow. Um, I want to take you back through, you know, when you first get a diagnosis. But let's take a brief commercial because I see you're ready for water too as well. So we're going to take a brief commercial break and we'll be right back. Chats from the blog cabin. Hit subscribe and don't miss the next episode. Chats from the blog cabin. Enjoying this episode? Leave a review now. Okay. Do you feel betrayed by life, your body, or by someone that you love? You are not alone and you are not weak or overly emotional for feeling the way that you do. Betrayal is one of the most overwhelmingly painful experiences to navigate because it strikes at the core of who you are and what you are worth. No matter how gutted you feel, there is hope. You can flourish, not in spite of your experience, but because of it, I know. After 23 years of marriage, my world was shattered when I found out that my husband had been cheating on me with five different women for 15 years. I lost everything that day, my identity, my worth, and the future I had worked so hard to create. While it was a long and arduous journey back to myself, today I know who I am, what I want, and I am happier and more confident than I ever was before. I've got what I call naked self-worth, which is the ability to just see know and love yourself for who you are not for what you accomplish or for who you are in relation to others no matter what has shattered your heart if you're ready to get clear on who you are what you want and to learn how good life really can be then life choreography is for you even if you feel too old or are too busy because you have kids at home and you're in charge of everything Life Choreography is a comprehensive, 
five-month, five-step program that empowers you to strip out of your labels, roles, and scripts, and to reveal yourself as you are, not as you think you should be. To learn more, go to nakedselfworth.com and download your free guide that shows you how to untangle yourself from the past, reclaim your sexy, and start re-choreographing life on your own terms so you can love and be loved for exactly who you most authentically are. And we are back chatting with Patricia, who wrote Pretty Girls Don't Get Cancer. Let's talk about when you first heard the diagnosis when, it, when you first came out stage four yeah so i heard it first from a doctor but he didn't say the c word uh, at all and i asked him you know is it cancer and he kind of dismissed the word said well we don't really like to uh, use that word this is um, blah 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 right he i, I didn't hear much else um, so then my sister either came in or I called her, I don't know what, but she came in the room and I asked her, hey, is it cancer? And, and she was the one that said yes. Um, uh, I imagine how painful that must, that must have been for her telling me, her little sister, right, that, that, it, that yes, it was cancer. Um, but then she said a few words that were... Again, she was the the spirit, the one that always saw a possibility that was never uh, broken down by by any perceptions of, of no, it's not going to happen. No, for her, everything was possible, and that was that was contagious for me. It was you know the words that she said afterwards were were key for um, for my my faith for my, you know, my belief that yes, I am going to get through this. I can honestly say when I was reading that part, when you got to your diagnosis, that I saw a lot of parallels with my sister because like she mm -hmm. couldn't breathe as well. And she, she had, by the time they found the cancer, it was pretty much terminal four. I mean, stage four too. And unfortunately she died from it. So what do you think made your, possibility different was it your thinking or was it just the right place at the right time with the doctors using experimental stuff what do you think caused your the remission i i think everything all of the above um i kept a very open mind uh on things that that were that things were possible um i honestly believe that um there might have been some form of a miracle i don't know if it was a miracle of uh, hey, you're healed, um, or the miracle of putting people, the right people in the right place uh, at the right time for me. Um, I don't know what it was, but it was something that it was out of this world. I can't explain it really <laughs> with with what I know today about cancer um, and, and how what I know today about how severe I was back then. But um, I can't really say other than something that is out of my understanding intervening. so what made you decide to write the book and de detail your journey through it because a lot of people it's very painful to have to relive it and I think you even mentioned that in the book that it's kind of painful but it also brought up memories of how far you've come as well right um, 
so I, I want to share the story as as um, a potentially inspiration for others if they find words there that might be, um, you know, a source of, of hope uh, that you know it's it was worth writing it. Um, also, it served as as kind of therapeutic for me also to relive that and to go through it um, in a. In, in a kind of a coming to age uh, view, right? Like, gosh, I did all that, really? Um, and and yes, look how far I've come. And, and wow, I've had a little grudge here that I didn't know um, I had. And um, so processing all that again was really helpful for me. Um, and also some other people in, in my life, uh, a lot of people in my life that know the story and knew of the things that happened in bits and pieces wanted to see or, or wanted to hear the whole story so um they've insisted hey when are you going to write the book <laughs> and so it was years in the making and finally came out <laughs> yeah what'd you say 30 years in the making is that what you said probably 30 years in the making <laughs> now i love the way that you balanced western medicine and with the eastern medicine like the the mind work the Right. Sister saying that you didn't eat all the processed food and all the sugars and, and going through and changing your diet. Looking back you, at the time, did you think it was going to change anything or were you like amazed that it changed stuff? I, I'm, I'm sorry. Can you repeat the question? You broke up a little bit. I said, looking back, um, did it, did it kind of amaze you that it actually all the alternative medicines that you did along with the Western medicine that it actually worked? Were you like, in the beginning, we're like, no, it's not going to work, but I'll try it anyways. Uh, so I was learning about it. I kept an open mind. I didn't know if it was going to work or not, um, but I did have a lot of trust in my sister. So, you know, I kind of saw if she believes and she's so convinced on this, you know, why, why would I question it? Right. Um, and she always came at it with a very scientific um, approach. So she, she brought the science back then, which was very little uh, science. Uh, today, there's a lot more. But um, it was it was convincing. And you know, at that time, probably if she would have said, hey, some people are getting cured by, you know, uh, getting on their on their hands and doing handstands, I, I probably would have learned how to do handstands. Um, but but, you know, I don't know. At some point, there was some level of, you know, does this work for me or not? And the things that really stuck were the nutrition, the meditation, yoga, um, and of course, just healthy habits in general. Those were the things that, that really made sense for me. Um, you know, later on, even the American Cancer Society says that by healthy choices um, or having healthy um, uh lifestyle choices uh, can help prevent certain cancers, not all of them, but certain cancers. I love how you said, obviously, the yoga and the meditation, obviously, because you're still doing it to this day. Correct. Yeah. And I love it. it I, it's become my lifestyle. Um, I teach it now. And I love my students. And it, it's just a peaceful time. And it's time I make for myself uh, and, and for my healing. And I also love the fact that when your sister said go vegetarian and there was only one restaurant and your dad was like bulking about eating it, 
there and you said it tasted like it had no taste everything tastes the same how you took the initiative and went and took a class on how to cook vegetarian so that you would be able to prepare the meals right but the the class i took was not in that place because <laughs> there did taste like flaxseed um i took the class somewhere else and they taught me you know a few things like lentil patties and um how to make seitan out of actual flour i didn't know that you know if you actually have a, a pack of or a, a, a how do you call these the, the flour packets mm -hmm. if you soak it and then just wash it a lot the satan the gluten uh that comes out of it is actually what they call satan i had no idea and um so anyways i i learned how to do a lot of how to make a lot of those recipes from scratch um, back then and it was fun i started making them and practicing practicing them at home and that's when my father got a little bit more open-minded because he saw me in the kitchen and he was kind of proud that I was taking charge of the kitchen and making uh, lentil and, and uh, my very healthy uh, chicken uh, with a lot of veggies. So he became a little bit more open to eating that. And then you have something very unusual in your bedroom as well. <laughs> yes, a little. <laughs> that was a gift. <laughs> I don't think I would have, uh, you know, by my own initiative said, hmm. I would really want a pyramid in my room. <laughs> no. Um, yes, it was an unusual thing. And my father uh, screamed, yelled, and, and kicked it several times. Uh, but it was super fun. It was, um, it, it, I really enjoyed that the conversation really went from my disease at the time to uh, it does this pyramid really work? Is there science behind it? Is that even true or is it focus focus? I mean, some people even said black magic, you name it. It's, it was just fun. <laughs> now you were a teenager when all this was happening. How did that affect your relationship with friends? Because you'd mentioned in the book, we had several traumatic, tragic things happen to friends and then this happens to you. Yeah, so I was in isolation. So obviously they were having their uh, teenage lives and I was I was not uh, during that last year of high school. So that affected me in, in that way that I couldn't be with them, right? Um, but I, you know, I, I don't, um, I don't know how they felt uh, about it also. I know that that may have um, must have impacted their life as well. You know, thinking about, gosh, uh, Patricia's not here with us. Uh, so whenever they went out, they probably had that in the back of their minds. Even though they had fun, obviously, they, they, were, they were supposed to have fun. Um, we were so close that they must have had thoughts of, you know, why I'm not there, right? And um, in their mind, that was probably the next one that was going to essentially die because we had had so many and why wouldn't I be the, you know, I was, you know, stage four. So it was a, a matter of time when they, they heard about that news. So everybody was pleasantly surprised that I made it through. Yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah. Pleasantly surprised. I mean, because normally <laughs> when you hear stage four, you, there's no turning back, yeah. but you also did a lot of mindset work, a lot of mindfulness and being aware of your senses. Let's talk about that. 
Sure. Um, that was hard because my mind always went a million uh, miles an hour with all the things that were at school and family and friends and all of the things that I, all the plans that I, you know, I never looked um, uh, low. I always had dreams that you know, I wanted to change the world in my end, right? Mm -hmm. um, so mindfulness actually helped me ground and uh, just you know level level set myself and and um and not be so unfocused right not everywhere but just focus uh the attention on the here and now um there was one message that one of the doctors that i saw back then he um he said well you know being in the past or remembering things in the past and remembering or or wishing things in the future is kind of like living living and not living because you're living out of things that are not real anymore right mm -hmm. and learning to live in the now is really um, learning to appreciate every single instance of your life as if it was the only minute the only second you had to live and that was the most beautiful lesson he could have given me. Now, Patricia, do you have your book with you? I do. Yes. Do you want to read a part of it for us? Sure thing. So I'll read part of chapter nine. And that chapter is called Uncertainty. And I'll read the part of the CAT scan. I know that's a little rough part. A nurse opened the door and announced that the paramedics had arrived. It was the same nurse who had helped me bath with a cloth and change my PJs earlier that morning. I hope no one else sees my naked butt. I'd been watching TV and uh, waiting for a few hours. The paramedics helped me onto the stretcher and then carefully pushed the bed towards the ambulance parked outside the emergency exit. As the ceiling tiles moved, I reflected on, how, on all the things happening to us. My family was going through the biggest challenge of their lives, especially my parents. I couldn't imagine the pain of having a child being so sick and having the fear of losing her any minute. They looked so worried and confused. I wondered how many times they were asking God to trade places with me. As I saw their puffy eyes, droopy eyelids, and pale faces walking next to the bed, I felt sorry that they were going through so much. The sliding doors opened, and the paramedics rolled the stretcher out of the hospital. As I squinted to adjust to the outside light, I felt grateful to soak in a bit of the tropical weather. It was a relief from the low air conditioning temperatures. The leaves of the trees danced with the breeze as the sun playfully showed its shining bright face. Sweetie, we're going to fold the legs and get you in the ambulance, a paramedic warned, so I wouldn't be surprised by the sudden drop. Then pointing up towards the building, he continued, look, your friends are on the balcony. Searching upward, I saw the brown walls of the hospital. On the second floor balcony were Jasmine and Julian looking towards the ambulance. Holding back the, her tears, Jasmine smiled at me. I could tell all the way from the bed she'd been crying. Julian, my friend and Jasmine's high school sweetheart, 
put his arm around hers. He smiled with, with a compassion I'd never seen in his eyes. It was as if Jasmine and Julian were feeling every bit of my own pain. Please don't cry. I was the sixth dramatic case over a period of two years that hit my close friends. Andreas, Raphael passed away from the tragic motorcycle accident and Gustavo died from cancer. Jenny and Greg's sudden death played sp playing sports at school left us all in sad disbelief. Wilma lost her ferocious battle to cancer and finally Victor battled cancer with a few years for a few years and survived. I imagine that, like Jasmine, most of my friends were having a hard time coping emotionally. The word spread quickly that I was very ill, and the speculation that I wouldn't make it through was torturing everyone who knew my family. As hard as Rafa tried to cheer me up by showing excitement about the ambulance, I slept through the entire ride. The next thing I knew, I was in Hospital Coromoto and was taken to a room and into the CAT scan machine. I was in that uh, machine for a long time and I could hear, and all I could hear was the noise and the voice from the speaker, don't move and or hold your breath. All I could see was the tunnel in that white machine and the black glass that holds the image, the imaging devices. The room was cold and my trembling hands were placed on top of my head. Time passed by slowly as I came in and out of sleep. My cousin was in the small room with the, with the computers. All the technicians and nurses had serious expressions on their faces. At some point, my cousin left the room. I understand he went to talk to my parents. Once finished, the staff helped me onto the stretcher again. I was exhausted and felt weak. As they were pushing me out towards the ambulance, I looked to one side and saw my mother's red face. I must have fallen asleep. Sometime later, I woke up in the Hospital Paraiso room again. I learned months later that while the technicians finished the last part of the test, my cousin had spoken with my parents. I can't even imagine how hard it must have been for him to deliver such news to one of his favorite aunts. It's everywhere. Your little girl, she is invaded. Wow. You can tell you're tearing up right now as you're reading that. Your <laughs> eyes are tearing up. I can't even imagine the pain of my parents. Yeah. Do they ever say do they ever say anything to you about how they were feeling during that time? Oh yes. We sometimes talk about it and um, you know it's afterwards we hug and say it's so good that we're here right um but they they had a really rough time well i can just i can just only imagine seeing and my sister was 27 when she died and i remember the the stuff that my parents went through we had a little blessing toward the end though after my sister died but my sister and myself my other sister and myself were pregnant and so they were going to have their first grandbaby so we think that was a blessing in disguise for my parents to get through that because i can't even imagine what your parents were going through and you were what 17 years old i was 17 yes wow yeah no yeah. now looking 
that's yeah. such a blessing that you had your um those babies come out afterwards mm -hmm. that's beautiful so looking back now was there anything that you think you would have wanted them to do differently or do you think everything played out the way it was supposed to play out you know um i i wish that that first doctor would have um taken this case seriously um and and probably that we wouldn't have dismissed the symptoms at the time that that they were there right there in front of us uh, we all have an opportunity to influence our health by paying attention to our bodies and if there's any lesson or the biggest biggest lesson that i've got from all of this is listen to your body don't dismiss anything and don't wait for when you have time um if it's if it's bothering now if you if you take a pill it'll only mask the symptom but it will still be there the cause will still be there so look for the cause of whatever's bothering you uh, to make sure you address it even though it might be scary now i want to go back to your you were talking about the ride in the ambulance and going to get the cat scan you your mom like said you're leaving this hospital and you're going to a different hospital how many different hospitals were you in in venezuela I was in one, two, three different hospitals and uh, some other testing facilities. Wow. And then I kind of have a little heart here because North Carolina, this is where I'm based at. And you went to Duke University. So I was like, I know exactly where that is at. <laughs> so you know the Southern uh, <laughs> speech, right? The Southern speech, totally. Even though I hope I don't sound like the woman in the book. So. <laughs> It was just hard. I, I, you know, English wasn't that uh, familiar to me at that age. And it was so hard to understand her. <laughs> yeah, so true. And, and honestly, I can see that with people with accents now, like you're from Venezuela, but I don't hear your accent. How long have you been here in the United States? Over 20 years now. It's been a while. See, my husband is from Mexico and I still hear his accent. He still has that thick accent. He's been over here. And, almost 30 years he still has a thick accent yes well i and i hope he never loses it mexican accent is amazing i love it <laughs> now one and one part of the book i don't want to give it away but you actually write a letter to your younger self and that that just had me in tears reading it because i can see so many similarities in myself not only because you know we don't treat our younger selves that well at all so if there's one thing looking back, what would you say to, to a young girl or a young boy that is going through this at this time? Yeah, just love yourself. You're beautiful and awesome the way you are. And, um, you know, um, just take time to, to just be. And it's okay if you mess up. It's okay if you're, if you make mistakes and, you know, your, your family is there to, to help you through things. Um, uh, but definitely uh, listen, be attentive, and don't rush through life. Um, live every phase as, as the beautiful phase it is. And when I talk about beauty, by the way, I talk about beauty inside. I don't talk about being beautiful outside because <laughs> like we don't really care about that one. I mean, some people do, but... I guess that's important in some in some ways, but it's it's the beauty inside that I talk and about. And speaking of that beauty, the one thing you struggle with that a lot of cancer 
patients struggle with is losing your hair and losing your identity. So let's talk about that. Yeah, for me, it was hard. Um, I was, I, you know, I, I'll admit it. I was attached to, to that part. I mean, I was in the culture of beauty being uh, something important, right? Being pretty and being uh, a girl, right? So <laughs> you, you, I was attached to, to the, the hair and the, and the looks. Uh, so I had to let all of that go and learn to see myself. The way I really am, not not because of my hair or or from the the angle of hair or beauty, but the angle of who I was inside. And a lot of forgiveness on your part for yourself, for forgiving for family members and everything else. How did you work through that forgiveness? It was hard. <laughs> I had no idea that anything was there, but um, but yes, definitely. You know, when I talk about forgiveness, it's not it's it's about forgiving things that you don't know are there baggage and things that are completely um, that you're you're just not aware that you have um, a lot of um, so I, I I don't talk about the forgiveness of oh I did something wrong therefore I got cancer absolutely not that's not the 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 um, the approach or, or or my thought process I don't think anybody would consciously or unconsciously develop a cancer uh, because of that. I don't know enough about emotions because I'm not a therapist, but um, when I talk about forgiveness, it's about just letting go of those um, unresolved things that you have in your life that you're not aware of and just live happy. Yeah, I love that. Live happy. Now, a lot of Throughout the book, you talk about your faith. So let's talk about how big your faith was in all this. Well, I didn't know I had faith until it was tested. Um, I was, I grew up in a Catholic family. I went to church. I was, you know, I did my all my prayers and, uh, you know, uh, prayed the rosary and all that, those things as a Catholic, right? Um, and I just had no idea what forgiveness was or what um, believing in something that was so literally impossible that, you know, I would basically, I was willing to fall off a cliff and let God take the lead. Um, and, and that's what we did. I mean, we, we literally fell off the cliff, like just you're in charge. Cause <laughs> I, I sure wasn't. Um, and I don't think anybody in the house felt like they were in charge. Uh, there was something that was leading us to, to answers, and somehow those answers um, kept reinforcing that we were in the right path. And the right path led you to write the book. Um, mm -hmm. How long did it take you to write this book? Because obviously you had a lot of crying, short crying emotions. I mean, a lot of emotions come up when you're writing this. So you probably had to take breaks. <laughs> so I've wrote, written um, parts of the book during multiple times in my life or during those 30 years. But really it was during a uh, time of, of uh, transition, career transition, where I wrote about 30,000 words. And I told one of my mentors, hey, I finished. And she asked me, so how many words do you have? 
And I said, 30,000. And she said, oh, Trisha, <laughs> to be considered halfway serious, you at least have to write a book that has about 60,000 words. Mm -hmm. And oh my gosh, that was like, it was the worst thing that she could have done, but the best thing she did. And um, so I, I locked myself up in a room mm -hmm. and all I did for one month was write. So in one month, I finished the book, the first draft of the book. And then I was like, okay, hey, I have the 60,000 words now. <laughs> and she said, okay, great, that's the first draft. So next step is to, um, how do you call this, the, uh, to go and, and join a writer's group and, and basically workshop your, uh, your, um, your writing to see if it's good or to, to mold your, your writing style. Like, really? I thought I was done. So <laughs> a year later, I went through the whole book and modified the whole book. So draft two came out and, and then I, there was, that was the time when I started looking for an editor and that process took about six more months. So it's, it's a long process writing a book. Wow. You know, a lot of people don't have the luxury of shutting themselves up in a room for a month and writing the book. What did you do for money and stuff like that? Well, I fortunately I had a little bit of savings and I was able to do it. Um, and again, I was in a, in a job transition, so I was I had moved here to Maryland, uh, and I was you know actively looking for a job. But during that month, I didn't do any active search of a job or anything. I just focused on the book. Wow. And I'm glad you focused on the book. Thank you. Now, how long after you finally finished it to when you finally said, okay, I'm going to self-publish it? That was about two years. I would say two years. And, Why did um, and during COVID, I, I was like, all right, there, this is a time. I, I use isolation to do things that, um, that, you know, I, I don't necessarily have time for. And because it was a forced isolation, I basically focused on publishing the book and it, and it happened. You're talking about isolation and COVID. A lot of the stuff you already dealt with. So it wasn't, it was like maybe a walk in the park. I don't want to say that it, it was a walk in the park, but maybe it was a lot easier on you because you knew kind of what to expect. I knew what to expect. And at the beginning of COVID, when they told us, you know, you take your computers and go home and all you're going to, you're going to work from home. I made a list of things and th that I wanted to do and complete during that time. And writing a book was on that list. Wow. Yeah. So where can people find the book? So I think you have that. Um, pretty girls don't get cancer and Amazon. So Amazon is the easiest way. Um, the, the book did win the award for the, um, ebook. So it's, it's nice to read it on the ebook and, and that's less, uh, less price for those who uh, like to read on, on the screen. Um, also in bookbaby.com, the store, uh, you can find it there. Walmart, Target, Barnes and Nobles, and, and a few others. And uh, you can always go to my website as well. Um, that's patriciadiaz.com. And you have the link to um, buy the book. I Honestly, I want to thank you for... Did, I got to know the artwork on the book. Did oh, you do that? No, no. I'm not, 
I'm not that talented. I actually, so if you look at the, it's kind of childish, right? Mm -hmm. um, but childish because that's the, the indigenous art in Venezuela. Um, like I wanted the, the, the round face and the, the hair that's like that, right? And the colors, the, the flowers that kind of represent the country and uh, all these little flowers like that, like that look like cartoon and the bike and all that. Mm -hmm. That was an artist. Um, I know him from, from uh, he's the brother of one of my uh, high school friends. And, um, and he did all the art, but he understood right away when I said, hey, I want something that's from Maracaibo and that, that's representative of our indigenous roots. And then he came up with that and I loved it. It's so cute because you don't normally see uh, uh, something like that on a book about cancer. So it's more uplifting. Yeah, it's uplifting, especially with the bright colors. Yeah, and I wanted uplifting because cancer is a is yeah, it's a tough topic, and uh, I wanted little things that would uplift the topic a little bit, and the cover was one of them. Do you think you have another book in? You I think so. I'm battling. I'm, I'm like thinking about the the ideas and uh, or getting some ideas together. And I started writing, but I it's good. If this one took thirty years, imagine the next. One. <laughs> well, maybe the next one probably isn't gonna be. Do you think it's gonna be more personal or less personal? Because I don't know. I we'll see. Uh, I have no idea yet. <laughs> I, I think you kind of mentioned it a little bit in your book and you talk about that's a story for another time a couple of times. Is that one of the stories you're working on? <laughs> that's where I started, yes. <laughs> Gosh, you'll just have to read the book to, to read what she's talking about, right? <laughs> the little exactly. thing there. Uh, Patricia, I want to thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your story and letting others, you know, be a light to others who are going through this struggle because cancer is not pretty at all. No, no. And I hope, I hope it goes away at some point in our existence and that we find a cure and that, um, yeah, people is, you know, if, if anything of my book is, it can be of help to anyone. Um, I hope it gets to the right places. So thank you for having me here. I'm truly honored. And, um, and yeah, I'm so happy to be here. And when you write that second book, even, even if it's 30 years from now, maybe I'll still be doing this. You're welcome to come back on and talk about the next book because I want to read the next book. Now you've got me interested in it. <laughs> thank you. So guys, the book is called Pretty Girls Don't Get Cancer. And it's all about her journey of a teenager and being diagnosed with stage four cancer. So as always, guys, I'll put everything in the show notes where you can find Patricia at, where you can find her book, everything else. And as always, be blessed. And most importantly, keep chatting. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. Chats from the blog cabin. We not only have voices for a podcast, but also faces for YouTube. Don't miss your next episode.